Hey everyone, thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Today's conversation is with Justin Jordan. Um, Justin Jordan is someone that's career I've been following ever since he kind of exploded onto the scene with Strange Talent of Luther Strode, and it was an amazing, amazing time chatting with him. Uh, For those process junkies out there, you're going to love listening uh, to us chat about kind of the difference between working independent and working at the big two, how Justin puts his pitches together, and you're going to get an insight in kind of how Justin uh, might work with some of your favorite Marvel or DC characters. Um, if you like the podcast, please, please, please subscribe and also leave us a review. And if you want issue one of my hit indies, uh, comic series, Man of Sin, please go to aguildy.com forward slash free comic. That's A-G-U-I-L-D-E.com forward slash free comic. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode. I am here, uh, with Justin Jordan of uh, Strange Talent of Luther Strode fame, Urban Animals fame, uh, Deathstroke fame. Uh, you know, he is, uh, you know, a, a writer and creator that uh, I personally am a big fan of, and I cannot be happier uh, that he's joining me here today. So, Justin, thank you so much. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I, uh, I don't get people mentioning Deathstroke all that often, which uh, is a shame because I really enjoyed writing Deathstroke for, for the fairly brief amount of time that I was on it. <laughs> I, uh, I, was it, was it the new 52 that that came out? It was, it was, I was, so I was following up on Rob Liefeld's run. Um, so it was funny that was not well received. So we knew we were running out the clock, um, that the book was going to be canceled. So I only got six issues on it, but they were a pretty good six issues. I thought I, I enjoyed Deathstroke. That's one of a, a handful of things in my career where I'm like, oh, I really wish I had gotten to do a lot more of that thing because I, I, I dug it and I thought I could have done a good job. I, I really liked it. I was there was like a new 52 like moment where I was like completely like just entangled in everything that they were doing. And I just remember really enjoying Deathstroke. Um, it was like it was a, a really different take on it, too. It was like uh, wasn't he like someone who like. I'm, I'm trying to remember because it's been a couple of years now, but something along the lines of like someone who could like kill everyone or like, isn't afraid of everything. Like he finally has like, Oh yeah. 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 Like I, I'm trying to, I, it's been years now. So, I'm, but I just, I just remember liking it. And so when I think of you, that's like one of like the three things I think of, which I, I don't know if I'm the only person in the world that thinks that way, but you're I not. Do. I, it's funny. I, I don't get it mentioned to me very often in in this sort of context, but I actually do still sign a fair few copies of Deathstroke when yeah. uh, when I'm actually out there. Uh, of actually of my creator own or of my work for hire work, I probably have signed more Deathstroke than anything else. I think Deathstroke is one of those characters that sort of inspires a a fair degree of like hardcore fans. You know that like if you're into de- into Deathstroke, you tend to be into Deathstroke, so that that works out. Yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of. I, I remember just it was just a lot of fun. It, it was very much uh, uh, I could definitely feel your style from like Luther Strode on that too. Oh, like, thanks, man. Yeah, like the violence. Yeah, I thought Deathstroke was a good fit. Yeah, and and not only the violence and the action, but like kind of like the 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 a little bit of the humor and in between moments. Like I could definitely see like the the lat not the lateral movement, but like oh Luther Strode to this that makes sense. Yeah, it's been kind of funny with my work for hire sort of career because uh, Deathstroke aside, I very often have gotten a lot of creator-owned work that to me, or not creator-owned, work for hire work that 
to me seems non-intuitive in sense of like, okay, you've read Luther Strode, so you want me to do this new Guardians run? I'm like, I mean, I'm into it, but like that doesn't seem like the obvious like segue to me. Uh, I mean, it turned out I think pretty good, but like I've I've had a fair bit of that. Like, it's like I I haven't done much work for Marvel. But the work I've done was writing a, a Captain America and Jubilee short story and a a uh, few issues of Monsters Unleashed, which is, you know, sort of a kid-friendly book. And if you've read my creator-owned stuff, I don't think that either one of those is where you would immediately go. Uh, it's not a knock. I actually enjoy doing that stuff that's sort of outside of my wheelhouse, but it's always been odd to me that I get picked for those things rather than somebody being like, hey, man, you want to write Lobo? Like, you know, which to me would seem like the obvious yeah. sort of yeah. thing. Or like Carnage. or Exactly. Yeah. No. I uh kind of since we're we're on this kind of uh you know um work for hire stuff, what was it like going from uh creator owned and Luther Strode to then all of a sudden you're in the offices of DC and Marvel? Like how was that pitching process? What was different? What what do uh you know, newer creators that are just starting out with their own creator stuff, what do they need to kind of know and bring to the table if they ever get that chance? You know, it's interesting. I I kind of went from not having a career at all to having a pretty thriving career in about a six month stretch. Um, and part of that, and I think this happens to a lot of people, right? Like if you come up in comics the way I did, which is not, is a fairly, atyp- a fairly typical way to do it, which is, you know, you work for a long time doing small press and your own stuff and you do something at image or dark horse or whatever. In my case, it was image. And then you get noticed by the big two and they, they offer you a gig. There was, at the time, not really any sort of like middle ground sort of thing. So, so nowadays, there's a few things that DC and Marvel have done where they've got you writing, they've got newer people writing one shots or short stories or anthology stuff. Um, but at the time I came in, that wasn't really a thing. So my first two big work for hire gigs were rebooting Shadow Man for Valiant and rebooting Team Seven for DC and those were the first work for hire stuff that I had really done. So it's very much a, you are learning how to do the job on the job with everybody watching. Um, and there is definitely a learning curve. It's one of those things. I think a lot of, a lot of people that, that are new into writing and when they get their shot, um, they tend to think of it as the same skill set as writing, create your own stuff. And it is not, it is related um, and the writing aspects of it are similar in terms of like the, the details, but fundamentally like you are when, it, so when I do stuff at image um, for instance, or when I'm doing creator own stuff, like I am basically writing to please myself and I am, and the art team are kind of the only opinion that matters. Um, and then it comes out and is what it is when you're doing work for hire. There are a bunch of different levels of people you that will have, that have the ability to weigh in on your thing. They may or may not do so, but you know, so when you're working at DC, for instance, when I was doing stuff, you would have the day-to-day editor, the group editor, and then, you know, Dan DiDio and Bob Harris and possibly uh, Diane Nelson, uh, who was, uh, was at the top when I was doing a lot of stuff there that those have all since changed. Uh, but you know, that's, that's the, the how, how comics moves. But all of those people can weigh in on the choices you're making creatively. And your job then, in part, becomes to make the best book you can within the confines of what you're being given, knowing that it is a collaborative effort 
even beyond the sense that create create our own stuff as a collaborative effort if you're not a, a cartoonist who can write and draw their own stuff um and the other part of it is you and some of this ranges into like just philosophy right like so i'll i'll stipulate that to begin with but also part of the thing with work for hire is you are the steward of of the intellectual property this is not your baby this is somebody else's baby and your job is to do the best job you can, but not to break anything. Or at least that's how I look at it. And I know there are people who, who, who would disagree with that and think that you should be trying to break IP. But, you know, when I am, when I am writing something uh, that is IP related, particularly franchise stuff like you would get in the most superhero stuff, I know that I am usually not the first person who have written those characters, uh, most of them. Um, and you know, there are exceptions. Brimstone was was me and Philip. But like, you know, when I was writing New Guardians or when I was writing Deathstroke, I was not the first person to write Slade or Kyle. And I was not the last person to have written those. So I am part of a chain. And it, I I feel my job there was to look at what came before me, but also consider what was coming after me and to have that kind of big picture view of it. And I don't even assuming you agree with me on that, I don't know that when people are coming in and they're new to writing that they are looking at it in that whole sense. So I don't think a lot of people that are getting their first work or hire gig are, you know, are really aware of how many voices go into that kind of thing and uh, and that you are part of something that will go on after you, you know, particularly that, that voice thing. It's one of those things where uh, I, I, there's a tendency for comic book fans um and i would assume this is fans of anything but comics is what i do is that you there's a decision made in a book and you the writer are the guy who did that whether if they don't like it you know what i mean so as a for instance like i did new guardians and kyle and carol ferris were having a romance there and carol was classically hal jordan's uh love interest and so people were just really mad and while i did that that was at the best of editorial. I didn't object. I, I thought it worked organically given the setup we had, but like, you know, but it's not, it's not editorial who gets blamed for that. <laughs> and so right. I think you also need to be aware of that when you start doing work for higher stuff is like, it's, it's on you, whether it's your fault or not, it's your fault. Like, so how, uh, so when you, when you, you got to DC and Marvel, were they like, you know, here's what we want you to work on, or did you get sort of a pick, or was there like a board, and they're like, "Hey, Justin, here's the here's your menu." Like, how does how does that work? And then it, you have it has it has varied. Sorry, I, no, 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 it, no, go on. Yeah. Um. So when uh. So for instance, with Valiant, where I ultimately did Shadow Man, I basically contacted them and said, "Hey, you know, I uh." I wrote this book, Luther Strode, and it was pretty cool. You, uh, you, you want to give me some money? And uh, <laughs> they were, they were like, "Yeah, we also like Luther Strode." And so they so actually told so me, "So here's your money." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, would that it worked that way? Um, they also, uh, so they already had some things that were uh, already had writers working on them. So like uh, Exo Man of War was already spoken for and that kind of stuff. So they said, "Here's the properties we have." write us a short pitch for each of those and we'll see what we can do and and i did that and i wrote pitches for uh for sure for and now it's been like 10 years so memories are fuzzy it was definitely shadow man rye and ninjack there may have been others in that stable but i those are the three i remember doing and of course shadow man is what they ultimately went with um 
in the case of DC and Marvel in particular, it has actually almost always been, hey, we want you to write this book. And like, I already have the job if I say yes, which is a unusual position for writers, uh, I realize. Uh, I was having a conversation with some fellow uh, pros fairly recently, and we were talking about bake-offs. And uh, what a bake-off is for people who don't know is basically uh, a company will ask a bunch of people to write pitches and they pick the one they like. And it's, you know, it's a bake off. Uh, and, and I will tell you companies will very often not tell you that you are part of a bake off, uh, which is frustrating. I don't inherently mind doing it, but like, I would like to know that it's a competition. Yeah, that'd be nice. But before I, right. Uh, but what I said to them was like, I have only ever been in one bake off that I knew was a, bake-off which is to say i've gotten other gigs that might have been bake-offs but if they were i won (laughs) uh so i have had this odd career where a lot of my work a lot of my work for hire work has very much been people coming up to me and offering me a job that is mine if i want it rather than having to pitch and kind of fight for stuff um which is not to say that i don't pitch some work for hire stuff i do uh, I do pitch DC periodically on books that I would just like to write. Uh, the aforementioned Lobo, I, I do quarterly. Actually, I'm about due, uh, and, and they've got new management, so I might have a chance uh, this time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been interesting, which is uh, to dive into the psychology of the writer. Like I, I will flat out acknowledge that is a great position to be in, but it's got this weird thing of sometimes I get up all in my head because – I feel like a lot of my work for higher career is just based on random luck because most of the work falls into my lap rather than me actively going out and, uh, and finding it. Now the flip side of that is, is I do obviously work really hard pitching and getting uh, creator own stuff going. So that's kind of the, the flip side of that is that that stuff is all a lot of like grinding hard work, usually and a lot of pitching and that sort of thing. Yeah. So two things I, I would love to kind of cover. Um, the first one is, you know, uh, since we're on the topic of pitching, like if you had to go back in time and tell your younger self or tell a new writer, like what they need in their pitch or how to put together a good pitch, like how could you, how could someone, you know, up their pitch game? So I think, you know, I have been pretty lucky in that uh, by the time I pitched Luther Strode, I had actually gotten my pitching ability pretty well honed and to the point where the format that I used for Luther Strode 10 years ago is still my generic template for pitching. Um, and, and that actually, so what I tend to do in a pitch and there are other ways to do it in, and I'll get into detail about the, the, the weeds of this, the small details that I think make a difference, but my basic format is here's the short version of the pitch, which is a sentence or two. And then there's a longer version of the pitch, which is a couple of paragraphs. And then if it is a mini series, I will do a paragraph or so on each issue. If it is a ongoing thing, it'll be that plus a paragraph or so about some potential arcs. And then a thing introducing myself and the creative team and that sort of thing. And that generally has worked out well for me. And I think contained within that one thing that I have found to be incredibly useful, not just for pitching, but also for for straight up selling is you should be able to tell anybody what your book is about in a sentence or two. One sentence is ideal, but not everything lends itself that way. But 
so if you ask me, like, hey, what's Luther Strode about? Well, Luther Strode is about uh, an average nerdy kid who sends away for a Charles Atlas style bodybuilding course. Gets it, does it, develops superhuman powers, but also becomes the target of a murder called as old as mankind. Now, obviously, I've said that a lot over the last decades, uh, and, and it'll run on autopilot if I let it, but Luther Strode is, you know, it's a reasonably complex book, but it can be distilled down into one sentence uh, or two sentences. And I think getting to know your story that well is the key to good pitching. Um, and I think the other aspect of it is to remember in a paradoxical way that a pitch is not a story. Um, a pitch is a sales hook for a story to an extent. And it, it is a a lot of things I see new people doing with pitching is they are talking to the editor or the publisher as if they are the reader and they are leaving questions open and stuff. And that is not what you are doing. What you are trying to get into a pitch is in the most concise way you can encapsulate both the story and the feel of what it is that you're trying to do. So if you are pitching a comedy, your pitch should be funny. It doesn't have to be laugh out loud funny, but it should be that if you are pitching a horror book, there should be aspects of horror in there. And I, and I realize that's really subtle and it takes practice. Um, but you, the idea of a pitch is to take everything that is in your head and in what you dream the project to be and distill it down into the most concise and effective thing that you can. And honestly, there's not a good way to get good at it other than doing a lot of it. Uh, and so, I mean, I've done a lot of it because I've had... Oh, man, I, I actually need to do a recount. I think I have 16 or 17 creator-owned projects that have actually been either made it to print or been greenlit. I think everything that's been greenlit is now in print, um, but I've lost count of what the number is, but it's over 15. And that's, that's a good problem Strode. to have. That's a good problem to have. It is. It's a very good problem. Uh, and But I will tell you that there were 15 or so before Luther Strode, um, and of those 15 or 16 that I've had make it to print, uh, there's probably that many pitches that I've done that didn't make it anywhere, right? So I have done a lot of pitches that have made it to the eyes of editors, uh, not all, and about a third of them have gotten accepted, which that in and of itself is an extraordinarily high hit rate. Um, but yeah, a lot of that is pitching, you know, is, is an art. Um, uh, it's funny, I was recently doing a workshop with some newbie creators about pitching it was specifically a pitching workshop and it was it was interesting because you know it's one of those things where you get so used to doing something that when you have to explain it to somebody else you're like i am not 100 percent sure i know how i do this anymore you know what i mean it's that and and it's you particularly will understand that is one way to make yourself better at your task is to teach it to somebody else because it forces you to know what you're you're actually doing and think about it yes uh, you know I, besides being an english teacher i'm also a wrestling coach and i instantly became a better wrestler as soon as i started coaching like overnight and then the same for for teaching like you immediately um you know you you ask questions or look at a thing in a completely different context and you start to know it intimately whereas like if you're just kind of doing it you're just like yeah i'll figure it out yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exactly that. Um, and 
you know, I, I, I talked about that one sentence thing earlier, and that has also been very useful for me for uh, talking to retailers and, and helping them to sell my books. And I realize that's down the road once you've actually got published. But being able to pitch and being able to do that kind of stuff is something that will never not be useful to you. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the things I would advise people is I would so and I do this myself is so when I'm developing a project, I, I tend to accumulate a lot of notes. I'm just that kind of guy. I will I will get into the weeds about the second and third order effects of things, none of which is relevant to the story. It's certainly not relevant for the purposes of a pitch. So once I've done all that, I actually read all that, set it aside, and just start writing from scratch. A lot of people will try to edit their notes and stuff into a pitch, and I think that is usually fraught with peril because you're just going to get it lost in the weeds when you do it. And certainly that's what happens to me. So I think, you know, there's there's something to be said about know your story intimately, put it away for a day or two, and then just write the pitch from scratch. And then go back to those notes and compare and see if you left anything out. But once you've got that basic framework, it's kind of thing. The other thing that I found is useful is just explain your story to people verbally if you're not sure you know it yet. You know what I mean? Uh, You can ramble on for a long time, but most people, certainly most writers, will start to get self-conscious about how long they've been talking, like I am with this very answer. And then you know uh... no i i i love it you know i didn't want to cut you (laughs) off i think it's i think it's uh uh, it's it's really it's it's great for you know myself and anyone who's listening uh to know this stuff i think it's you know i i just brought an editor on i'm starting a new series and i've never really worked with an editor because i I feel pretty strong uh obviously you know i'm an english major and i feel about storytelling but um i needed to bring someone on because i get lost I, i realize that I could, you know, I could, I can't see the, you know, the trees in the forest, or I can't see the forest of trees, whatever that saying is. Like, sometimes I get lost in my own story. And one thing that he had me do is he was like, I need you to do, you know, really dig into this one aspect of a character. No one's going to see it. No one's going to, the readers will not even know if this exists, but you will. And it's going to help your writing that, you know, this, this thing, it's going to help the series just because you know it. And so I spent a good, not a good amount of time, but like a, kind of like a day really getting into the weeds with this one character. And you know what, it was probably the best thing that, you know, little quick little exercise I've ever done. And it was, uh, it was really helpful. And it's like just little things like that. You don't think of when you're in it, you're just trying to like write it or create it. And it's, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's going to be hard. That stuff, that kind of thing is immensely handy. Um, And it's one of those things where I think that in the weeds part of it is why, uh, I am I am a very serious outliner, but like despite all that, sometimes you start writing something and it just doesn't work. And like it's some of that, I think, is that lost in the weeds because you just don't see stuff that you would have seen. And I might pick it up in the outline if I set the outline down and came back like a week later. You know, what I mean, when you when you get that the benefit of distance and that kind of thing. That's one of the reasons I actually. I don't do a tremendous amount of media, but I actually appreciate it when I do because people ask me questions that I hadn't necessarily thought about and forcing myself to think about it that way actually improves the story um, and my grasp of the story, which is why I do try to, I don't know, I've had, I've had an oddly solipsistic kind of career in that I, I have never done a creative writing class. I have never really been a part of writers groups. I don't have beta readers. I don't, on a lot of um, some of my creator own stuff, I don't even work with an editor. So it's just me and the art team and that sort of thing. 
None of which I recommend, by the way. Like that's that's not an endorsement. That's just how I've rolled over the years. But I, I have found that actually talking to people and trying to explain my story and hearing it out loud allows you to find holes that when it's in your head, you're able to really just spackle over <laughs> and, and be like, oh, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't actually work now that I'm spitting this shit out, out loud. So yeah, it's it's really interesting when you. One thing I, I, I do that's very, really similar is after I write something, whether it's an outline or a first draft of a script, I let it sit for a couple of days because I feel like if I come back to it, my, I'm still like in that same mode I was like my, my brain was still kind of focused in. I need to see it with a, a fresh pair of eyes and kind of be objective um, and really look at it in a different way. Um, yeah, so- it's one of the, one of the things about um, I'm a big fan of. Actually, I'm a big fan of Stephen King. I was in denial about that for years, and then I realized I've read all of his 900 books, so clearly I I like the guy. But in particular, On Writing is one of my favorite books on, you know, writing. Not because I write like Stephen King, because I very much don't, um, but it is hugely inspirational. If, if If you can read On Writing and don't want to go write something, you're probably not going to be a writer. I don't, I don't think you can read that and not, not want to go write, but, that is one of the things King talks about is about putting stuff away and letting it sit and working on something else. And while in a lot of respects, King and I, Stephen King and I work differently, that one I am, I am entirely agreement about. That is, that is a good idea. So you do don't you, always have that luxury with work for higher comics because you're on a deadline, but when you can do it, you should. Do you agree with uh, Stephen King that writing is telepathy? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've used that, uh, that example myself. Um, that's, in, in comics, that actually tends to be more between the writer and the artist, but mm-hmm. the extent to which that's true is amazing. Actually, to go back to Strode, uh, for for the decade that we've been working on Strode, or I had been working on Strode, but Trad and, I, Trad and Felipe and I are still really good friends. We still email and text every week. Um, but we've always joked about the hive mind because we'll start an idea and everybody else immediately knows what we want. And it is so akin to what telepathy must be like that it's amazing you don't get that with every project but when you and the you and the artist are on a good groove you really get that feeling of oh this is this is somebody whose mind is running in parallel with mine Uh, and we are doing something better than either of us could do alone that is that's probably the greatest feeling Uh, I've I've never written a novel I've never made a movie Um, I've only made comics and the greatest feeling is getting your art back and someone took some idea that was in your head and now made it like into the physical world. It's like, Oh yeah. I adore it. It's like, it's like better than Christmas morning and your birthday and new year's wrapped into one. Like, I don't even know how to explain it to someone who hasn't had that happen before. Like it's, it's amazing. It absolutely is. It's funny. I was, um, I was doing another interview and I was asked why, uh, why comics? And that was actually a big part of the answer. You know, the other part of the answer is that I've always loved comics, but one of the reasons I've gravitated to comics and not novels, um, and I would like to write a novel, like I've, I've tried and failed any number of times, but man, what I really enjoy is that rush of working with somebody else and getting this stuff back. That's, you know, that's super cool and seeing the artist has improved on what you did. And just that collaborative aspect is so much fun. Uh, that that feeling is yeah, it is hard to describe to somebody who doesn't feel or has not yet felt it. It's uh, but it's great. Yeah, and and like you said, when they um, when they're you guys are lockstep with each other. I know 
um, when I was working on uh, my series Man of Sin and artist Camilo Pons would come back with some stuff. And not only was it, you know, it elevated anything that I could have written on the page, but it was exactly like what I was thinking, but better. Like that doesn't even make sense, but it, like, I'm sure you, you want I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Like, well, this is exactly what I was thinking in my head, but it's way cooler than anything I could have yep. thought of. Like, it, it's just, I don't, it's one of those things that it's, it's really hard to describe unless you've done it yourself. And it's, uh, it's really cool. It, it really is. And it's, it's the best part of, of collaborative mediums, I think, is that, is that telepathy, is that, that working with somebody and getting in sync with them. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Yeah. So uh, kind of brings me, I, I had two questions. The first one you answered, um, and I love. The second one is, how are you able, you, you said you had 16 pitches that were not accepted, 16 pitches that, that were, plus your work for higher stuff. How are you able to be so dang prolific? Uh, terror. Um, and <laughs> That's bills. a good answer. That's a really uh, good answer. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, and it's, and it's a joke, but it's not. Like, so part of that is that I just have a naturally restless mind, right? That I'm just, it's just spinning off ideas and that kind of stuff. But another part of it in a very real way is that one of the ways that I procrastinate is by working on something else. And if I am, if I am nervous about something or stressed out about a project, I start another project, which is useful for being productive. I'm not entirely convinced it's healthy. Uh, but the other part of that that actually goes into the prolific question is that I intentionally limit my schedule um, in, in the sense of this. So on an ordinary day, I will finish my writing related tasks, um, actual writing. There's, there's, there's housekeeping stuff, business housekeeping that goes on that takes up a lot of time. But normally in a given day, I will write for about four hours, four or five days a week. I try to take the weekends off. I try to always be done with any actual writing work by six o'clock or so in the evening. And the reason I do both of those is that I have found that if I push any further than that, I, get into this boom bust cycle where I do a lot of work, but then I'm useless for like a week at a time. And overall it's that daily incremental stuff gets me a lot more productivity over a month and over a year than the other method does. And, and it's a lot less stressful. Um, but my natural, my natural inclination is to like, go, go, go. So I'm always kind of fighting those two demons. I, I enjoy the time off and I am, and it is good. And I recommend it to people. I think, you know, you get more done that way, but at the same time, I am always on the verge of having too many projects and too many ideas and too many things that I want to do. Um, that's, I get people are like, where do you get all your ideas? Is that hard? I'm like, no, I, I could work on the ideas that I already have for the rest of my life and never have a new one and not run through them all. So that is not the difficult part. The difficult part is staying focused on the projects you have and not getting distracted by every new, you know, uh, new idea that you want to run after the new squirrel while ignoring the squirrel you almost had. So, right. Yeah. I know you're doing the, uh, the idea Tober, which is, I think really cool. Like the writer version of uh, Inktober. So I'm sure like you've probably already have gone down that rabbit hole with some of the things that you, uh, you put down for Ideatober. I absolutely am. I, but you know, it's funny. I've also been enabled because I, and I recognize this is not a position that most people will find themselves in. So I am very blessed and lucky that 
Yeah, I had a publisher be like, oh, yeah, there's these two ideas. You should do those up as pitches and send them to us. So, you know, that happens, too. Um, yeah, Ideatober has been super cool. Uh, as I was talking about that elsewhere, too, and I was like, well, part of it is just weaponizing, you know, what my brain does anyhow or monetizing what my brain does anyhow. But also I wanted to do I- Ideatober for a while because as I was kind of talking about, I- I've had writing as a solitary endeavor often anyhow and mine is maybe more solitary than most and i looked at inktober and inktober is cool and it gives artists kind of a communal way to interact and see with each other and writers for the most part don't have that i think probably the closest big scale thing that we do have is NaNoWriMo, which is national write a novel in a month thing um but if you're not a guy who writes novels or a girl who writes novels uh then you're sort of you know not going to do that so this this was my attempt to kind of do something like that. And, you know, it's not been this thing that has gone massively viral, but, you know, to my surprise and delight, there's been, you know, a few people that do it and they've been doing it every day. You know what I mean? We're 12 days in and there's been probably a half dozen people who have done something for each day of it, which is actually way better than I would expect it. And as it happened, I got like three days into it, and I'm like, I deeply regret not doing this sooner because this is super fun. Yeah, <laughs> like I, it's fun for me. It's fun to read. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I like the uh, the Moby Dick one you did. Um, you that one I am it. definitely going to do. That one, yeah. I was like, oh man, this like has some legs on it. Yeah. Um, but I was really wanting to do it, and then I just was like, you have so much on your plate. Don't even don't add this to it. But next year, I think I'm going to do it because it looks like a lot of fun. And it's a, yeah. good, it's a good way to kind of cultivate some 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 good idea. Like just, you know, it, it forces you to kind of get into that pitch mode a little bit. And kind It of- absolutely does. And and I, I think, you know, the way I look at it is if you do, if a person does Ideatober and they get one viable idea out of it, they are doing great, right? Like that's one idea is all you need. Like, and hopefully you get more than that. Uh of what I've done of Ideatober now, there's been at least three things that I think I probably will actually spin out into an actual project at some point. Um, Which three? The Moby uh, Dick one? So Moby Dick, uh, the Moby Dick one, the whale. Um, Do you mind going through those for anyone who sure. doesn't? I absolutely will. Um, the other one was Johnny Jetpack and uh, the one that I did actually today, which was sanitation so i I, and i will actually go over what those are since i was vaguely doomed i was actually opening up the document that i have that has them so i can talk about it so the uh, each day for ideatober for every day in october there is a prompt um and so the first day was pug uh which i went with a uh uh pug dog who wants to be a boxer uh as in you know a fighter just because it's like a five level pun that I <laughs> am unfortunately attracted to. Um, but the second one and the one that you were talking about is whale. And that one is actually, I will, uh, I will read what I wrote for it, which was Johnny Ismail joined a new crew of criminals looking to grift in some casinos and make some easy money in Atlantic city. But the crew he's joined is led by Ahab King who tried to run a con against a legendary whale, one of the highest of high rollers, but it went wrong, leaving his old crew dead, king with a crippled leg and a newfound obsession, vengeance at a cost, which is very obviously Moby Dick by way of Ocean's Eleven. Um, and- I, lo- I love the Atlantic City too. Like, I don't know if anyone got that. but like- <laughs> I hope people would. I thought that was a nice touch. I'm, I realize I I'm patting myself on my back. 
I did, I did too. Like, I was like, oh, he totally nailed it with Atlantic City. Like, if he would have went with Vegas or Macau or, like, anywhere, uh, like, Reno, it wouldn't have, like, it wouldn't have been so good. Like, the, like it, obviously it was good, but, like, that was, like, I was like, oh, man, he nailed the Moby Dick one for sure. Yeah, I I was really pleased by that. And, you know, it's one of those things that obviously I have been been thinking about it since I since I did that one. And I uh, I can see the ways that you can take the thematic stuff that's in Moby Dick and, you know, God and fate and inevitability and stuff and and putting that in a in a context of gambling and criminals and kind of stuff actually really works. To the point where I'm kind of surprised nobody's done it as yet. Uh, to my knowledge, it's, it's not impossible that somebody did. But as, yeah, as soon as I read that, it, the first thing I thought of was, "How the hell has this not been made yet?" That was the first yeah. thing. Like, how has no one thought of this yet? Like one of those things that's so obvious that it, it upsets you. That like, <laughs> like, where, why hasn't this? Why hasn't this been a thing yet? Oh I, man, I was, it's... I was so floored by that. I was like, "Oh man, good for you, Jordan." It's uh thank you. Yeah, it's funny. I uh I'm working on a spec uh feature film script and it is exactly also that, not not the the Moby Dick thing, but it is an idea that is so obvious that when I researched it I could not believe nobody had done it. And I can't talk about what it is. But it was just like how in God's name am I the first person to have done this in fiction? Like that seems nigh impossible, but Google Google did not give me anything and my my own pop culture knowledge is pretty pretty wide so there you go um the other one that I really liked was so day five was jetpack and that one was basically about a kid Johnny jetpack who gets sent back from the future but his future is like the 1950s future right with like food pellets and jetpacks and uh, flying cars and that kind of stuff. And he's this sort of uh, rocketeer style hero. Um, and his whole thing is run by citizen scientists. Uh, and he's sent back in time to make sure that that future is the future that happens. But there are other futures that have also sent people back. So there's one called the meat hook future, which is kind of a cyberpunk thing. Um, and that's, that's, you know, medium clever and all that kind of stuff. But the one part that interested me is... At the risk of ranging into like kind of political sociological stuff is because Johnny is from a 1950s version of the future. It's also one where like women aren't in the workplace and everybody is, you know, white and middle middle aged and, you know, there's not a lot of freedom of thought. And he gets back to what is essentially the current day and sees how our world is. And he's like, what what's going on? Um, But because he's not a bad kid, he starts to realize maybe I'm from the bad future, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I really, I really liked the, the playing with what the future would have been in like what they would have thought 2020 would have been in 19, yeah. like 45 or like 1951, like in that, like that picket fence version of America. Like that's really interesting uh, to me. I thought that was a really clever one too, for sure. I like that one a lot. That one. So I, I've given some thought because I am an epic nerd uh, as into how you would bring like Fantastic Four into the, the MCU. Mm. Um, and that has some, some DNA in common with this because a thing that interests me is that while like Reed and company, you know, Reed is on account of, is, is definitely a good guy, but he is also a product of 
the early 1960s and a particular attitude of that of science is going to save us. Scientists know what's best. Uh, the daddy knows what's best kind of thing. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to examine that in like a modern context. Right. So, and it's a, a tangent here, but like, I, I, it would be interesting to me to like take somebody from the sixties and immediately put them in a world where that is different. Right. And so like Sue starts realizing, Oh, I don't have to be what I thought I had to be. You know what I mean? Mm, Cause yeah. she's got this massive culture shock. So that's kind of in the Johnny Jetpack DNA is that, that sort of aspect is thinking about the different, the different views of the future and how we are always kind of extrapolating both what we want and what we have into the future to varying degrees to, to kind of figure out what it is. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know where I read this, but speaking of fantastic four, someone wrote, I, I was scrolling through social media and someone wrote how uh, Dr. Doom was uh, messing around with science and magic. And so uh, Mr. Fantastic didn't recognize that. And that's why he sabotaged him. Something like, Oh, that was me. Was that okay? So, okay. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, like I read that and I thought, man, that's really interesting. So it, it, it really puts, it flips the dynamic of Dr. Doom and Mr. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying any of these are the only way to do it, but that's the stuff that interests me. Right. And, and I, I actually like that one in particular because it does for me some interesting storytelling stuff, which is it makes Dr. Doom not entirely wrong about Reed, but it doesn't make Reed malevolent, but it does highlight a young person's arrogance, right? Like it's Reed doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's too confident in what he thinks is going on. He makes corrections because he doesn't understand the full context. Uh, and I think that creates a really interesting dynamic between Reed and Dr. Doom where they're not either of them entirely wrong, uh, but neither of them is right at the same time. Um, but they have wildly different reactions to it. I think Reed would regret that. And I think Reed would realize that he was wrong. Whereas I think Doom, Doom's ego would just enti- entirely blame Richards and would become focused on that. So he's still recognizably Dr. Doom, but I think it adds adds a dimension to it that I, I at least find interesting. I'm sure other people would disagree with me. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember where I saw that, but I remember re- it was obviously you. So I, I apologize for not remembering you. Oh, yeah, that. no worries. But I just remember finding that and just was like, man, this is a, this is spot on on, on a new a, a different take that could work. Uh, and it would be interesting. It would still be both the characters, um, but it would be, a, a, like you said, a different level of. Um, it, it would it would definitely put a different layer on their relationship, right? And how, um, and how they would interact. And I really like that with um, not only our our protagonist but also our villain too. Like he's not completely evil. Like he was right in some. Like I, I like having some villains. Like this uh, take the MCU Thanos. Like it. Like even though you know it's wrong, like it's some, there's like some like part where you're like, oh, well, it kind of has it. Like there's some point to it. Like it's not the point I would go with. Like it's not a good point, but it's a point. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I really like that with that, uh, that version of it. Oh yeah. I am. I particularly, I'm a big fan of the, the MCU thing. I'm a big fan of Thanos period actually, but particularly the MCU version. But one thing that I quite like about that Thanos is that it is very much 
not difficult to see the good person he could have been in another world. You know what I mean? Because to their credit, that version of Thanos has a lot of genuinely admirable qualities. Like, oh yeah, he's an egomaniacal nut job, right? And like his whole thing is there kind of to be right, right? Like he says he's doing it to save the universe, but it comes immensely clear. He just wanted to be right. Um, but at the same time, he is intelligent. He is resourceful. He is honorable in his way. He has empathy, you know, which is proof, right? The soul stone thing wouldn't work if he didn't actually weren't capable of love. And I think that all just makes for an interesting villain. And as it goes with Dr. Doom, it's, that's sort of the same deal. I've always been sort of fascinated by the idea that Latveria is actually not a bad place to live, so long as you don't mind the fact that he's an iron dictator. But, like, it's not shitty. Like, your actual standard of living is okay, you know, and you're safe, relatively speaking. Um, so it's interesting when you give villains like Dr. Doom kind of those good qualities. And, and I think Doom in particular is a very epitome of you don't have to look too hard at what Doom is to see the better version of him that could have existed. Um, and I think that's actually a thing that works really well uh, with him and Reed is that in the better versions of the way Reed is depicted, it's actually not hard to see the villain in Reed either. Um, and I think that makes them a good pairing. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of, you know, when Hickman did Reed, and I think Secret Wars too. I see a lot of very villainous qualities in Reed. You know, oh yeah, almost, almost more so than than Doom at some points. You like, it could be, it could get real dicey real quick for Reed. It absolutely could, and that's, uh, you know, it is to a certain extent built into the character, right? Like, I, I wouldn't do Reed as a villain, uh, and people have the the Ultimate Universe went went that way ultimately with him. <laughs> ultimately um but i do think it is worth acknowledging that reed kind of from the ground up is constructed as an arrogant arrogant character who is also very capable and arrogance and being capable are not a great mix and you know if you're a good person it it can work out okay but you need to be aware that you have those qualities uh and you know, it's built right into Reed. He's, he flew that mission with his friends and family, like that was clearly ill-advised, um, especially for Ben. So, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I to fanfic out a little more. Uh, I've thought about also thought about how to introduce like Doom into the MCU, and I think actually he's an interesting character. He's an interesting character, anyhow. I obviously love Doctor Doom, but. Within what the MCU has built, it would be it would be interesting to bring Doom in, both because he you could bring him into the MCU as somebody who is almost as good as tech as Tony Stark, but not quite, and almost as good as magic as Doctor Strange, but not quite. But he's got those two things. So and everybody else has just one. But he can do both. And then, you know, you've got this thing where maybe in the background it turns out Sokovia has had this leader rise and he's actually made Sokovia kind of awesome in like a dark, not, not visibly dark Wakanda way, but sort of that same, wow, they they're really getting the benefits of this tech that exists in this world, but hasn't really made its way to the rest of the people. And then, you know, he reveals himself on the world stage and it's Dr. Doom. And he's like, yeah, we're, we're taking Sokovia back to its pre-Soviet name, Latveria which is incredibly nerdy, but I actually think it's kind of awesome too. But I think he would, he would make for, 
he would in that sense make it for a good villain in the MCU because he would be doing something the MCU hasn't seen. I think that fusion of magic and tech and political stuff is would be an interesting way to take it if they were going to go. Yeah, I, I would. I, I definitely see that, especially with you know uh, the Wakanda angle. You know, there being a, you know a nation in there, and I, I love the fusion of, of tech and magic. Um, it, it would be. I, I would love a, a really well done version of Doctor Doom in the MCU, not the uh, the one we got from Fox. Man, yeah, I just. Are you a Fox fan? Are you were you a Fantastic Four fan for the, uh, of the Fox movies? No, I don't hate them. Um, and I'm talking about the ones with uh, Jessica Alba. Right, those ones are fun movies, and I don't think they're terrible. And I actually think they come, they get probably seventy five percent of the way there. Like they're they're in this weird space where. It's not really the story or the choices they made. It's the problem. It's just the execution. Like if you if you took the same basic movie and just put like the Russo brothers on it or somebody who's had that proven kind of track record, I think the bones are there. Except with Doctor Doom, I think their version of Doctor Bo- Doctor Doom is kind of crap. Uh, and the Josh Trank version was even worse. <laughs> but. I, I always wonder how that stuff happens, right? Like, you have millions and millions of dollars to throw at this movie. Like, how do you get it wrong? Like, there's not enough people around that... Uh, too many people around, actually, I think is usually the answer to that. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that makes sense, right? Someone has to put their fingerprints on it, and that person... do, and I yeah. actually think... You know, some of that is alchemy, right? Like, it, it's like putting a comic book together times, like, a billion where you've kind of got to pick the right people and then let them do their thing, but like keep them inside the lines just enough. And that is actually really hard to do. And so in, in particularly in the MCU, I think Kevin Feige is the secret sauce, right? Because I think he is the guy that is choosing the talent and he's got a good eye for choosing the right people. And I think he has a big picture vision of what they do. The MCU is pretty remarkable. I, I, I love it. I don't love all the movies equally, but I am impressed by their ability to take basically the good parts of the characters and their histories and figure out what it is that makes them those characters and fit it into a cohesive whole, which is not easy to do. I I am not as down on the DCU uh, movies, you know, post-Man of Steel kind of interconnected universe as some are, but I don't think they have ever really reached that level of, of sort of perfection perfecting the characters you know the best version of those characters uh you know it's one of those things where at the risk of running into the whole man of steel kind of controversy it i don't even think that man of steel is a bad movie i think it is not i don't know what the point of doing that with superman is right like i think there is a good use for characters like you could do a james bond movie where he just sits in a meeting room and like gives advice on a phone but like why do that with james bond that's not why anybody is coming to a James Bond thing. You know what I mean? Like there's, right. there's a best use of the characters and, and sometimes they don't do it. And man, I think sometimes uh, as it goes with superhero stuff, I think people are just looking to reinvent the wheel when they don't need to, or that some concepts are too simple. Like I think the Punisher has typically not done well. The, the MCU, the, the Netflix one was good, but man, like the, 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 uh, the one that John Travolta and, mm-hmm. uh, What's the actor? 
the guy from Hung and The Expanse. Thomas Jane. There we go. Like that version, and even the Dolph Lundgren one, and even Warzone. Warzone was was better at it, but they're just adding too much stuff. Like, no, he's he's a guy who's a cop whose family got killed, or a soldier whose family. That's literally all the detail you need about the Punisher's background. Like, you don't need an hour with his family, so we feel for him because everybody intuitively understands losing your family sucks. <laughs> like, that's not a that's a thing that can be in the opening credits. It doesn't need to be the movie. So I think sometimes and i think that happened with like the trank fantastic four is like they're looking for like a new edgy take i'm like don't don't do the new thing just do the thing that exists well <laughs> it's kind of my deal yeah you know we we saw that what we've had three spider-mans now and it's like basically yeah. the same thing same story three times yep and it works yep. it, it does works. and and i uh man i really like tom holland's spider-man i uh i, I I, I I could gush about the MCU at length, but man, their casting is just spot on. Like I I would be hard pressed to think of of a badly cast thing. They occasionally use actors badly where they've cast them because I think Christopher Eccleston probably wasn't well treated by Thor: The Dark World. But in general, it's not who they cast that's the issue. Right, right. Uh, it's my show, so I'm going to do like a really super hard segue here. Uh, yeah, do what you want, man. Yeah. I realize I'm rambling. So no, no, no. I love it, man. This is this has been absolutely awesome. Um, so I know you're. Uh, we talked a little bit about pitching, a little bit about outline. I guess this, right? This whole like fanfic thing is like talking about ideas and how to make it yeah. better. Yeah. So I guess it's not that hard of a segue. So, <laughs> uh, so I know you're you're uh, putting together a, a Patreon where you're going to be giving some writing classes. So like going back to you know uh, teaching. Uh, to to get better like can you I, I know it's not out yet but can you give me any details on that and what, yeah, what, so what people could expect that's, <laughs> yes um so i have a patreon and it actually does have a teaching aspect to it already which i am terrible at updating uh i have really been dropping the ball fortunately like not really anybody subscribed to that level so it, it works i don't feel as guilty but i still do feel guilty about it but one of my 2021 projects is to basically put together a course and I'm just calling how to comic book, which is basically everything I know about every aspect of, of comic bookery and also some stuff that I don't necessarily know. So in an ideal world, I will partner with like a colorist and be like, if you're a writer, here's what you need to know about coloring, for instance, which, you know, I, I realized uh, some years ago that, I didn't have a good vocabulary for what I wanted or how to describe what I was trying to go for in terms of coloring. So I was, I was really having to work hard to do it. And Mark Chiarello, who was at that time, the art director at DC, uh, he literally wrote the book on coloring and lettering. It's a book by Mark Chiarello and I recommend it. And he actually sent me a copy of it and did me a major solid, but I realized thinking about that, that it would be good to have resources this is in addition to the other stuff. So the course as intended will be, you know, this is how a story works and this is how to develop it. And this is what it needs to be specifically for comics. This is how page turns works. And this is what you can do in a panel, what you can, this is naturalistic dialogue versus realistic dialogue and all that kind of stuff. But it'll also spin out into like how to put an art team together and how to contact an artist and how to pitch and then it'll be, you know, there will be modules in it that will be, if you're a writer, this is what you need to know about art from an artist's point of view. So I'll 
hopefully be able to partner with some artists and actually talk to them about that. And then this is what you need to know about colors and production and editing and that sort of thing, just to give you as complete a picture as I can. And, you know, part of that is I wish that such a thing had existed when I was coming up. Uh, part of it is, is that I like money uh, and I, I think people will buy it. <laughs> I certainly hope so. And part of that is that from the aforementioned thing where I think going through all that in a systematic way and figuring out what I want to say about it will make me better at all those aspects of it. Uh, and it's a big undertaking. Um, it's my 2021 project. That's in addition to my creative stuff, not instead of. But right now I'm, I'm kind of juggling so many balls that I can't possibly do it. Um, yeah, that, that on. Um, oh, sir, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I was, I didn't, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off though. Keep going. It's fine. Um, yeah, the way I'm going to do it is I, I'm actually going to work through a new project more or less live. Uh, so they will, I, there'll be me explaining what I think is doing. And my caveat to all this is with any writing advice and probably any creative advice, what I am telling you is how I do it and how I think you should do it. That doesn't mean that's the way to do it, like, because that's not how any of that works. Um, but I'll be working through it, but I'll also be developing a project. And, and I know what project it is, but I'm intentionally not doing any work on it so that I can do this while I'm developing the course. And you will get to see it go, and you will get to see me work with an artist to develop characters, and you get to see me write scripts and all that, and all that will be part of it. Um, this will, in an ideal world, eventually also be a standalone thing, but it is also going to be going up on my Patreon live as I get them done. Um, so I ultimately want to do it as a video course, but I will obviously be writing the whole thing out before I try to record it. Um, so that is what people will be getting on the Patreon. They'll get the videos too eventually, but if, if when it goes live, you want to watch that stuff and see what I have to say about all that kind of stuff, Patreon is the place to kind of see the beta version of that, um, which will also be substantially cheaper <laughs> than, you know. It'll cost you less to do that than it would to probably buy the buy the course, uh, assuming I don't screw it all up. Well, it, that's that sounds awesome, and I know you talked about having a bunch of different uh, things in the air at once, and one of them being uh, Urban Animal, which I believe is coming to Kickstarter. Do you mind talking? A little it bit is. About it is. So Urban Animal is the series that I do over at Webtoon. So it is a digital online webcomic um which i really webcomic and online are redundant but you know i don't have an editor for when i'm talking out loud so here we go um and urban animal is about uh, a kid named joe gomez who one day is getting bullied and he finds out that he can turn into a saber-toothed tiger um and it turns out he can turn into a lot more than that but that is where his life starts getting very very weird as he discovers that he is a guardian of nature and is also at the center of this big bad's return to power. Uh, so it is a play on, you know, some of the chosen one Harry Potter kind of tropes. And it's also me doing some superhero stuff without costumes. And it's also Justin really like Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the day. <laughs> so it's kind of doing all those. Um, but we're doing over at Webtoons, which it's been fun. It's, it's both an interesting experience creatively because the webtoons format is where we release a new episode every week. So we're in the midst of season three right now. And the seasons are typically, they're supposed to be 25 episodes. We, we have typically gone 27 or 28 for each of them, which ends up being, uh, if it were a print comic would be nine or 10 issues worth of stuff. Um, so we've done a fair bit of urban animal so far. And 
it's been successful. It's it's interesting coming from the direct market comic book shop world because the sense of scale is entirely different. So by way of a, for instance, as we record, this urban animal has just shy of 475,000 subscribers. Uh, we get 80 to 100,000 readers a week. Um, and by Webtoon standards, we're kind of mid-list. Uh, we're doing well, uh, and they're pleased with us, but we get about the 10th the, we're about the tenth the size of Let's Play, which is their biggest thing. Um, and Let's Play has like four million subscribers or thereabouts, and she probably gets a million readers a week. Um, that doesn't even make sense. I don't even. Yeah, I don't even understand those numbers. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating, right? Like I, I, you've undoubtedly seen this on my Facebook because God knows I've talked about it enough. But like, when I say comics. What I actually mean is direct market comics, right? And and that's most of my peers do the same thing. But like the direct market where the top selling thing in any given month is usually like 100,000 copies is the smallest market, right? Like, so Dave Pelkey and Raina Telgemeier who write uh, early reader and kind of mid-grade stuff. So Dave Pelkey writes Dogman and he did Captain Underpants. And Dogman is for sure comics. It is sequential storytelling art. There's no... No ambiguity about that. His latest version of latest installment of Dogman has an initial print run of five million copies. Um, yeah, and in any given year, he will sell two or three million copies. I actually think he might sell more trades himself than the direct market sells in aggregate. Wow. Uh, not single issues, but in trades specifically. Wow. Uh, no, and then, wow. what's that? No, no, keep going. Um, yeah, uh, and, and then, you know, the Webtoons thing is the same way, uh, and it's not just Webtoons, that's the whole of webcomics, but even, like, manga and stuff, you get, you know, you get a new a new uh, installment of, like, My Hero Academia released, and it's selling 60,000 copies of a volume, which is just a number you're not hitting, usually, in the direct market. Um, so, yeah, the sheer scale of that, compared to what I'm used to, is just sort of insane. Um, but Urban Animal is, as yet a digital entirely digital thing and we now uh so the way my contract with with webtoons works we're we're a featured artist which means they license the book license the series from us so we we do get paid to do it but the the series is ours um and they have an 18 month print exclusion um so that that's you know for 18 months that's the only way to get urban animals to read it at webtoons that 18 months is up for the first season so we are bringing it to print um and we thought about a few different ways to do that. Uh, I obviously have a pretty good relationship with Image Comics, and I think they probably would have published it if I had brought it to them. But we ultimately went and paired with Rocket Ship Entertainment, um, who they are a publishing company that is so far specifically is bringing Webtoon stuff to print. Um, we will be their 10th book. Uh, they've done two volumes of Let's Play, so it's nine different titles, uh, 10 books. And... Honestly, a lot of the reason we did that is that it turns out we don't have time to do it the other way because we're busy making the actual comic and I have no technical skills and John is nearly dead. So it's just, you know, doing doing uh, essentially 24 to 30 comic book pages a month is difficult <laughs> and it is a near miracle that John can maintain it. So the only way we were going to get it into print is if we partnered with somebody who could reformat it for us because... Webtoons works in sort of an infinite digital scroll sort of thing. So it's not, you need to reformat them for comic book pages. 
So we did that. And the way Rocket Ship Entertainment does it is they use Kickstarter to finance the print runs and that kind of stuff. So I am finally dipping my toes in the Kickstarter, which is something I'm hoping to do more crowd, more of crowdfunding generally in the future. Because I think there's a future in like kind of a hybrid model where you're doing stuff both in the direct and bookstore market, but also direct to consumer crowdfunded stuff, which it's funny. I thought that anyhow, but in the last month, you know, Scott Snyder and Keanu fricking Reeves have both done <laughs> massive comic book book Kickstarters. So uh, clearly I was not the only person thinking such things. And I think it's, I think the future is going to see a lot more of that. Um, so this this is an easy way because the content is done and rocket ship is handling logistics. So it's a way for me to be able to get out there and promote and see how the inner mechanics work of it without driving myself insane. Cause I am typically doing a bunch of stuff. So if I were having to handle fulfillment and all that other stuff by myself, it would not happen, which is why I've not done Kickstarter yet. Um, so I'm excited about it. We, we go live on October 19th, um, and it's pretty cool. We are, we'll are we be offering, uh, amongst the other goodies, but the basic level is we'll be offering a soft cover of Season 1, which is over 200 pages. Um, it's at least 10 issues worth of stuff, and that'll be $24, and we're doing a hardcover for $30. Um, so it's it's a reasonable price. It's not, a, not something where we're really, you know, getting... A, money out of people in that sense we're we're also doing some you know cool giveaways and we've got some cool stretch goals so i uh i am hoping it goes well i'm absolutely certain that once it goes live i'm going to spend the entire month obsessively checking what the numbers are on that kickstarter even if it funds immediately i am so inherently competitive i'm like no must do better must do more well as as someone who's, who's run two kickstarters myself that is real you'll be on your phone checking it all of the time. So prepare yourself. Yeah. We've got this, uh, we've got this follow along for launch thing and I've gotten myself to only checking it a couple of times a day. Now, now when we first went live, that was not the case. So I'm like, yeah, this is going to drive me insane. I'm, I'm going to be an obsessive lunatic for the October 19th, the November 17th. So I've just accepted my fate. Well, that's uh, a, that's, Super awesome, man. I can't wait for it to go live and see what you guys got. And uh, Urban Animal's been a great project. I like just all, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. So I, I can't wait to see what you guys have uh, for the Kickstarter community. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm really, uh, really proud of Urban Animal as a series. Uh, I, I think it's one of my best works, actually. I, It's been really creatively fulfilling. Um, it's, it's been interesting. So in the last couple of years, I have intentionally branched out into doing more than just, you know, serialized single issue comics. So, you know, six issue arcs and that kind of stuff. So I've done, I've done a few graphic novels. I've done some for Random House and, you know, and others. And I've also done some sort of the Urban Animal, which is hyper serialized, but they both kind of give a different effect because the rhythms are different. When I'm Writing for a single issue, I feel, I feel like each 20-page single issue, 20-ish pages should be – it doesn't have to be complete, right? Like, it's not a done-in-one necessarily, but it should be a satisfying chunk of entertainment. You should feel like you've gotten your 399s worth or as best I can do with that. And for me, that necessitates writing to certain rhythms. And both writing in the graphic novel format where you're doing one large chunk and both and the hyper-serialized thing you do at Webtoons – it's actually kind of freed me up in a way that I think has actually made my writing better. So like within Urban Ammo, the expectations are different. So I can get away with doing these smaller moments and these 
longer conversations that are just focused on people's relationships and interactions than I would be comfortable doing in a single issue thing. Now, admittedly, a lot of that might just be my approach to doing single issues and stuff, right? So this may be a problem of my own devising as it goes, but I feel like that focus on those emotional elements and stuff has actually made me a better writer across the board, even for my single issue stuff because of Urban Animal, which is really satisfying. Uh, and, and I think Urban Animal has turned out really well in that regard. Yeah, it was, you know, uh, when I, I checked out Urban Animal, I don't know, months ago or maybe even a year. I don't even know how long ago it was. Um, and uh, it was a f- one of the few webtoons, like um, webtoons comics that really did the ultimate, or, uh, like unlimited scroll thing really well. Like, like I've seen a lot that uh, like try to take like take a panel that would be in a traditional comic book and like slice it up in different ways and it just felt like, oh yeah like it felt like really clunky and this like I could tell you guys made it for the platform which was like it's like one of the best uses of the platform I've seen oh, thank you yeah way. yeah and John and I worked pretty hard on that it's funny it it also even comes into like the scripts so the way I script Urban Animals different so the first. The first three or four episodes, I was trying to do it in. I was trying to do scripts that roughly looked like. They're not wildly dissimilar as it is, but I was still doing like this is page one and this is six panels, even though there's no such page, right? But I found that I was still unconsciously writing to those kind of beats, and it was to the detriment of the thing. Um, so both John and I decided to lean into it, and we're like, yeah we would like to do this in print eventually, but it has got to be the thing it is first. You know what I mean? So we, we worked really hard to optimize the experience on webtoons and stuff. And it actually turns out really cool. Like I, I will read it each week just because, but like I usually read it on desktop, but even the desktop version is a slightly inferior experience. Cause on the occasions where I actually read it on my phone, it is really optimized for the phone, which is kind of amazing to me. I'm like, oh, this is a better experience on the phone. And I, yeah, I, I think John in particular makes really good use of the space in terms of kind of manipulating the emotional effect of it and that sort of stuff. Uh, and I, I couldn't be prouder of it. I, uh, and, and I'm a fairly small part of that because John, John and Mike are really kicking ass on that book uh, and really make it what it is. Um, but I am glad I get to be a part of it. Yeah, it's it's really awesome. And if anyone hasn't uh, checked it out, make sure you go to uh, Webtoons and check it out because it's not only a great story, but like you said, it, it uses the uh, the platform really, really well. In a way, very few um, that I've seen do it do it as well as you guys. So kudos to you guys. It's also free, so yes. that's always good. Yes, yes. So uh, <laughs> before we get out of here, Justin, uh, where can people find you? Where can they get a hold of you uh, and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, so probably the best central hub for me right now is Justin Jordan Comics on Facebook uh, and Justin Jordan Comics on Instagram, um, either or. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find there. Uh, you can also just look for Justin Jordan on Facebook. My, my profile picture is an adorable cat. Uh, all my stuff is public, essentially, so you don't need to friend me or you, you can. I, I am way behind on friend requests, partly because I am running out of slots for people. But since everything's public, I figure it's just okay to like, I'm like oh, I don't feel as guilty about it. Um, I'm trying to get my website going, but that is, that has been a long and involved process that is frustrating. So as it is, I am a 
digital sharecropper on Facebook right now. And that's probably the best place to find me. Um, but yeah, I, I try to keep that updated daily and try to give people links to where they can find my other stuff. Um, and of course we've got the, the urban animal Kickstarter and, you know, we will, we will be updating that on Facebook as well. But, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you, once October 19th happens, if you Google urban animal Kickstarter, it should take you to us. That's usually a good, good technique for me when I want to find a Kickstarter, I just do that. So yeah, it's exciting times, but, uh, that's where you can find me. Yeah. Uh, what about your Patreon that's up? Where can they find you for that? Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, let me look at what my actual name is on Patreon. Can't you tell how well prepared I am? <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm trying to, trying to help you out here. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that's just Justin Jordan at Patreon. Um, there is a link to that that is pinned on my, uh, my aforementioned Facebook fan page. Um, so it'll be fairly easy to find me there. Um, but yeah, if you, if you just Google Justin Jordan Patreon, it will also bring you to me. So we should be good to go. Nice. Well, I, I hear you got a phone call, so I won't keep you any longer. I do. Yeah, yeah, no worries, man. Justin, thank you so much for doing this with me. I really hey, thanks so much for having me, man. This was super fun. Yeah, I, I had a blast. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you go, man, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. All right, bye.